Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian societies and communes, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Ladies and gentlemen, the 45th president has left the building. Donald Trump is out, Joe Biden is in, and this is Anna, your extremely rattled but still patriotic podcast host. I've had it on my list to do an episode about Trump world for a while now, but after the events of January 6th, one of the darkest days in recent American history, I realized I had to bump it to the top of the list. The subject is so overwhelming and controversial and painful and baffling and sad that I almost didn't want to talk about it at all. But there are things that must be said. Trump was sworn into office vowing an end to American carnage, and he went out in a tragic blaze of American carnage. Why did a four-year mission to make America great again end with an America in crisis on multiple fronts with a violent and deadly insurrection by delusional conspiracy nuts and white supremacists at the seat of American democracy and speeding toward half a million Americans dead from COVID-19. Not to mention Trump's loss of the 2020 election, making Trump only the third single-term president in the last century and the only president in history to face two impeachments. What happened to the promised MAGA utopia and all that winning? And in the true spirit of failed utopia, are Trump extremists in a cult? If not, why does it kind of look that way? To my fellow Americans, I know you've been on the wild ride of Trumpism with me for the past four years, five if you count the campaign year, And whatever your political views, I hope you'll bear with me while I try to parse some of the more extreme parts of the Trump movement. To my international listeners, yes, I see you. I know you've been baffled and saddened watching America tear itself apart from the inside in an entirely avoidable and self-induced meltdown. I hope you won't judge us all too harshly. The actions of the most extreme in our society and the coddling and enabling of those around them have become a stain on us all. But if there's one thing about America, we've always been able to pick ourselves back up. I don't think it'll be any different this time, but it won't be easy and it's not guaranteed. In the words of one of my favorite television starship captains, we have to make it so. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've heard me giving my little meliorism speeches from time to time. But there's one thing I left out of the definition. The world doesn't just get better magically because of the onward march of time. It's human beings who have made it better, human effort. Peasants have risen up against their overlords. Thinkers and scientists have made incredible discoveries and breakthroughs And people all over the world have made the decision to hold their governments accountable and move themselves toward a more fair and prosperous way of life. 
Now it's up to us to solve this crisis so the next generation of Americans can continue moving forward, hopefully making the world a better place. The steps are small and the failures are many, but in the end, it's progress that counts. It's hard to know where to start, so first, let's just ask ourselves what Trump and his supporters hoped to accomplish in creating a great America, and then ask ourselves, how did that work out? We'll only have time to scratch the surface of Trump's successes and failures on this episode, but let's at least take a look at a few of Trump's signature issues meant to usher in the best America ever. Reshaping the federal judiciary by appointing conservative judges. Success. That includes three Supreme Court judges ensuring the Trump era will live on for decades to come. Tax reform. Success. If you're the CEO of a corporation, the reforms slashed the corporate tax rate but failed to produce the promised economic benefits that would make it a success for the rest of Americans. More on that later. Healthcare. Trump promised better and cheaper health care for everyone and a replacement for Obamacare. He never delivered anything on that front, but he did preside over a horrifically botched response to the coronavirus pandemic, potentially costing tens or even hundreds of thousands of lives with his denial, incompetence, and political weaponization of basic hygiene practices like wearing a mask and social distancing, creating a whole new front in the culture wars, and a family of disgraceful and loony new conspiracy theories about COVID-19 and ushering in peak science denial. He also refused to acknowledge that it was even his responsibility to try to deal with the situation, saying the exact words, I don't take responsibility at all. The pandemic wasn't Trump's fault, but mounting an appropriate, robust response instead of ignoring, denying, and sabotaging would have saved lives. There is no reason why the United States should have had the worst COVID-19 outbreak in the world. In October of 2020, a team of disaster preparedness experts released a report concluding anywhere between 130,000 and 210,000 deaths could have been prevented had it not been for the insufficient and botched response from the Trump administration. Drain the swamp. How about the most corrupt administration in history? There isn't even close to enough time to dig into the cesspool of corruption and cronyism Trump ushered in, but let me just say that the Trump administration is already going down in history as America's most corrupt. And one of the biggest questions about his departure from the White House, aside from his second impeachment, was whether he could pardon himself or would issue preemptive pardons for his family. Jobs. It's hard to say how Trump did on jobs due to the coronavirus pandemic. 6.6 million jobs had been added during Trump's term, but all those and more were wiped out by the pandemic. I think it's likely Trump's jobs record would look pretty good if not for the pandemic, 
But we should also note that the administration's botched response to COVID-19 meant that soaring infection rates kept businesses closed and raised unemployment even further. Trump had rolled out a massive infrastructure plan, but unfortunately that plan failed and nothing happened. Which is too bad because infrastructure spending is considered a very cheap way to create a large amount of jobs. As I mentioned, Trump's corporate tax cuts were promised to create jobs. But historically speaking, tax cuts do not generate enough new growth to pay for themselves. And that appeared to be the case here as well. Trump also promised to bring back manufacturing jobs from overseas, which would have been a great idea a couple of decades ago. For those of us who live in the present, today's challenges are technology like robotics and artificial intelligence replacing workers, as well as the need for workers shifting from manufacturing to other industries like healthcare. We do need real solutions to America's evaporating middle-class jobs, but solving 2001's problem 20 years too late while ignoring today's problems probably won't help us much. Supporting the military. The Trump administration did raise military spending a bit, although it's largely on par with the Obama years and lower than the first few years of the Obama administration when adjusted for inflation. He also made many, many questionable military and foreign policy decisions frequently at odds with military leaders. And oh yeah, he started a flame war with Gold Star families and got called out for referring to war dead as losers and suckers. Not to mention his bizarre fixation and hatred for the late Senator John McCain. His support in the military tanked between the 2016 election and the 2020 election, but nevertheless, Trump still enjoyed pretty strong support from active duty military and veteran voters. Rolling back regulations. Success, kind of. He did manage to roll back some financial and environmental regulation. Personally, I don't see how increasing the likelihood of another major financial meltdown like the one in 2008, or speeding up the environmental degradation and climate change emergency we're facing could be considered a positive accomplishment but many Trump supporters do, so we'll put a big green check mark next to that one. Although, Joe Biden seems to be wasting no time in the first few days of his administration in reversing all that. Another example of why governing by executive action is not a great substitute for passing legislation, but there seems to be no sign of progress in a deadlocked Congress that has gotten little done for many years now. Christianity. There's a running theme among many Trump supporters that America is a Christian country and that Christians are being persecuted by liberals and need to take the country back. Actually, you don't have to be a Christian to be a red-blooded American. It's in the First Amendment of the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. If you think America is a Christian country, you might be in a cult. I don't know why, but evangelical Christians have always been one of Trump's most reliable bases of support. He panders to them for votes, 
but embodies exactly zero Christian values in his own life and isn't religiously observant. But never mind that, he did follow through on appointing conservative justices to the Supreme Court and pandering to their views on abortion and LGBTQ rights as well, regardless of whether or not he himself shared those views. He also pandered to their ideas about America being a Christian nation, though again, he himself shows little sign of holding actual Christian beliefs. Another irony from the Trump era, the guy with a long sordid history of lying, cheating, sexual assault, and adultery, and no readily apparent Christian or religious motivations, got the majority vote from the conservative Christian bloc in 2020, while the devout, lifelong Catholic was vilified by many other Christians. Many right-wing religious groups believe that Donald Trump was anointed by God and as president was the only thing keeping Christianity from becoming illegal in America, which of course is another outlandish conspiracy theory. Of course, some of these folks found their way to the Capitol on January 6th. One guy who was there called the event an appeal to heaven. Immigration. President Trump's America First policy resulted in tightened restrictions on both illegal and legal immigration. All it cost was a little piece of America's soul, with widespread controversy and outrage over the so-called Muslim ban, punitive family separation policies, and human rights abuses in detention centers. Trump's wall at the Mexican border had mixed results. Some sections of fencing were added, though they were found to be scalable and some simply blew over in the wind. More importantly, Mexico never paid for it. Most experts agree that agents and technology are far more effective than a physical wall, which is not very effective at all. Joe Biden has already undone many of Trump's immigration-related policies via executive action. But U.S. immigration policies need comprehensive reforms enacted by Congress to avoid policies wildly ping-ponging back and forth every time a new administration takes power and issues a flurry of executive orders. Some of you will just simply never agree that immigration is a positive thing, but say what you will about the concept itself or any specific policy, and you still have to admit that there's a right way and a wrong way to go about limiting immigration, if that's what you want to do. Demonizing people from other countries in blatantly racist attacks and tossing migrants into detention camps falls under wrong way. There are good arguments for all sorts of positions on immigration, but none of them should include hate, racism, xenophobia, and human rights abuses. And that's a good segue into race relations generally. I don't think many people would argue if I say that race relations in America have taken a big nosedive. Which is not to say that race issues weren't there before, but the problems are certainly more visible than ever, and tensions reached a boiling point last summer with massive public protests. Bottom line, most Americans agree that Trumpism hasn't contributed to America's race relations in a positive way. There were his infamous comments calling white supremacists who rallied in Charlottesville very fine people, and castigating immigrants from Mexico as murderers and rapists, 
He consistently courted white supremacist support, installed known white supremacists in his administration, refused to denounce white supremacy, and retweeted racist content on his beloved Twitter account. According to the FBI, hate crimes soared during the Trump administration. If you think white supremacy is either no big deal or not real, you might be in a cult. If you truly cannot recognize the many, many examples of breathtakingly blatant racism Donald Trump has put on full display over many years, including prior to his presidency, well, you might be in a cult or, at the very least, sadly grotesquely misinformed. MAGA, make America great again. I'm not sure what makes many Trump supporters think the path to greatness is behind us rather than in front of us. As far as the Trumpian worldview goes, the starting point tends to be grievance, a sense of us against them, and the fear of losing something. As the country moves to a more pluralistic, diverse, and accepting future, many conservatives cling to the past, viewing bygone decades with rose-colored glasses. This is where things start to turn upside down, and you can get a white, male, straight Christian thinking he's persecuted and victimized here in America. Aw, call the wambulance. The actual sad thing is Trump didn't do much for the MAGA crowd, and I'm not sure why they thought he would. It's been painfully clear from day one that the egomaniacal New Yorker born with a silver spoon in his mouth couldn't care less about them. Donald Trump cares about Donald Trump. He led them on and then threw them under the bus when the shit hit the fan. No matter how badly Trump treats his followers, they tend to stay loyal. And unfortunately, conspiracy theorists, white supremacists, and militia groups also play on legitimate fears and anxieties about the future, elected leaders who don't enact policies that actually help their constituents and evaporating jobs, radicalizing susceptible individuals into something toxic and hateful, which describes the more far-out contingent of Trump supporters. And that brings us to January 6th. Sane people looked on in horror, if not surprise, as a mob of mostly white Trump supporters overran the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. after being incited to action in a speech by then-President Trump. They erected a gallows on Capitol grounds and chanted, Hang Mike Pence, as they flooded into the building, overrunning barricades and violently clashing with police as they went. They erected Christian crosses and carried Jesus 2020 signs. Some carried Confederate flags. Others carried American flags, some of which were used to beat a police officer. Many supported QAnon signs and apparel, some wore shirts with revolting Nazi slogans. The stormtroopers killed a police officer by bludgeoning him to death with a fire extinguisher. A woman was shot and killed by Capitol Police inside the building, and another woman was trampled to death by the mob outside, making all those don't tread on me flags seem kind of ironic. Two other men died from medical emergencies, possibly stroke and heart attack, during the chaos. 
Meanwhile, other insurrectionists, one carrying a taser and zip ties, made their way to the House and Senate chambers as lawmakers evacuated following emergency lockdown procedures and wearing escape hoods. Pipe bombs were found on Capitol grounds. Examination of social media and message board posts of those who openly planned to take part in the insurrection in the days and weeks leading up to it provides some alarming insight into things that could have happened. One insurrectionist had posted on Facebook, if you are not prepared to use force to defend civilization, then be prepared to accept barbarism. That post was met with photos of all the weapons people planned to bring to the Capitol. Another rioter tweeted, assassinate AOC. On the Donald.win, posters wrote, yes, it's illegal, but this is a war, and we're clearly in a post-legal phase of our society and that protesters should be armed with a rifle, handgun, two knives, and as much ammo as you can carry, and to travel in groups, and not let anyone disarm someone without stacking bodies. Some people wrote about saying goodbye to their families before heading to DC, as if they were going off to war, and explaining to their kids that they might not be coming back all because they'd been deluded into believing the election was stolen from Trump and that the day of reckoning, when the deep state would finally be unmasked and mass arrests of Trump's enemies made, was nigh. Now, I don't want to be picky and focus on reality, but when a group of maniacal Trump fanatics sporting QAnon, Christian nationalist, and neo-Nazi regalia attack the U.S. Capitol, hoping to violently overthrow an election result based on a stupid conspiracy theory that is not real, we kind of need to talk about that. These hardcore Trump supporters aren't playing. They believe this stuff. If you believe this stuff, you might be in a cult. Of all the utterly insane, mind-melting photos and videos that came out of that event, one of many that I'll never forget was a photograph of a man carrying a Confederate flag down the hallways of the Capitol. There is no other sane way to interpret this except as the most obvious and egregious symbol of white supremacy. It's racist, it's disgusting, it's treasonous, and it defiles every single moment of progress that our country has made since Americans stopped owning black humans as property. Reminder, the Confederates lost the war, and during the actual Civil War, their flag never made it to the capital of the United States. If you think the Confederate flag is cool, you might be in a cult. If you think wearing a shirt that says six million was not enough or Camp Auschwitz, you are in a cult, and that's the nicest thing I can say about you. something I came across on social media. It was anonymous when I found it, but it sounds like a pretty good rule of thumb. Huge numbers of our population, good people on both sides, believe in a complete alternate reality. Alternate facts, as it were. But just as intensely as I believe they are deluded, they think I am the one who is deluded. Maybe I am. 
So how can I be confident in my perception? It can be quite difficult. But I have found that in times of confusion, particularly when emotions are running high and creating tunnel vision, the presence of Nazis can be an extremely helpful indicator. If I am attending a local demonstration or event and I see Nazis, neo-Nazis, miscellaneous Nazis, or the latest whatever uber-mythology Nazis, I figure out which side they are on. And if they are on my side of the demonstration, I am on the wrong side. It is tough to argue moral equivalence when I am standing next to a Nazi. Look to my right. Is there a guy wearing a 6MWE, 6 million wasn't enough t-shirt? I am on the wrong side. Look to my left. Is that guy wearing a Camp Auschwitz t-shirt? Wrong side. Speakers referring to things Hitler got right. Wrong side. Team spirit face paint and hat with horns. This is an unclear indicator that could mean anything, but safest to keep my distance from that guy even at a football game. But I can always, always, always rely on the presence of Nazis as a guiding light through a fog of disinformation. Okay, so we've covered a little bit about the January 6th insurrection, but the Capitol riot wasn't the only attempt by Trump to stay in power despite losing the election. In fact, many experts argue that it wasn't even the most important one. After the 2020 election, Trump waged a massive campaign to discredit the election and directed U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr to go find some evidence that the election was fraudulent. The Department of Justice was, of course, unable to turn up any such evidence, and Bill Barr soon resigned. Side note, not only was the DOJ unable to turn up any evidence of widespread fraud, no one else has been able to do so either, including lawyers in dozens of court cases in which the Trump administration was asked and failed to present credible evidence. After Barr's departure, Trump attempted a bizarre gambit of subterfuge, which involved firing the acting attorney general who had replaced Bill Barr, Jeffrey Rosen, with an obscure DOJ official named Jeffrey Clark, who would return the favor by using the power of the Department of Justice to assist Trump in keeping power at all costs, including interfering with court cases regarding election results and the runoff election in Georgia. Clark's expertise that led him to be sympathetic to Trump's claims of election fraud involved spending a lot of time reading things on the internet, according to what he himself told his colleagues. This plan was stupid and ultimately failed thanks to other high-level Department of Justice officials who objected and threatened to resign en masse, ultimately leading Trump not to fire Rosen. But that wasn't all either. Trump had other simultaneous seditious activities happening in tandem. He demanded in a phone call that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger find 11,780 votes in order to flip the state's results from Biden to himself. He lobbied governors and legislators in several states, including Georgia and Arizona, to throw out their state's election results and he intensely lobbied then-Vice President Mike Pence to somehow refuse certification of the election results on January 6th, 
despite the fact that Mike Pence had no legal authority or ability to do so. While each of these attempts taken by itself may have seemed ridiculous and beyond a long shot, we have to consider all of these attempts as multiple facets of an intense and multi-pronged effort. We also have to consider the alarming number of legislators and government officials who were willing to go along with these seditious attempts to overthrow a legally held election and keep Trump in power against the will of the American people. This is all a logical and predictable result of the fact that there have never been any consequences for Trump's illegal and unethical maneuvers and authoritarian impulses. The failure of lawmakers to remove Trump in his first impeachment hearing showed Trump that he could essentially get away with anything, which ultimately emboldened him to continue on with the same MO as ever, perhaps with even more confidence that he was untouchable. And that's exactly what he did. He carried out his campaign against the truth, democracy, and the will of the majority of Americans right out in the open. There was barely even an attempt at secrecy or subterfuge. And based on recent reporting, it appears that Republicans in the Senate are extremely unlikely to vote for Trump's impeachment now that he's out of office. But here's the problem with that. If America doesn't break the back of its white supremacist and fascist movement now, our democracy is in more danger than ever. A slow escalation, enabled by lack of consequences, is the playbook for autocratic takeovers. It even worked for Hitler. So what can we say about those supporting Trump who think that the insurrection was just one step too far, but supported Trumpism right up until that moment? Well, probably not too much. Either they've snapped out of it, or they still believe there's no link between the fundamental beliefs and values of Trumpism, Trump's own words and actions over several years, and what happened at the Capitol. If you think there's no link there, you might be in a cult. So what did Trump say and do after January 6th? Was he shocked and horrified? Did he repudiate those who attacked the Capitol in his name and at his direction? Not exactly. According to White House aides, the president watched the insurrection gleefully on television and found it just delightful. He also gave a creepy I love you speech to the Capitol rioters, made no mention of his own role in the incident, and continued lying about election fraud and conspiracy theories. The next day, he took some time to award the Presidential Medal of Freedom to some golfers, and apparently unironically took a trip to visit a section of his precious border wall, hilarious and sad considering the real threat of more violence coming not from South Americans and Mexicans trying to cross the border illegally, but from homegrown white nationalist extremists and domestic terrorists inside the country. Days later, he did record a pathetic message weakly denouncing the attack, which he read mechanically from a teleprompter after he was advised that he could face criminal charges after leaving office for what he did and needed to engage in some cover-your-ass activity for legal reasons. Then he promptly returned to whining and lying, true to form. 
Much has been said about America's recent slide into divisive politics, which seems an incredibly quaint way of describing it in hindsight. Politics in America has always been divisive to one degree or another, but there does seem to have been a downward spiral in recent years. You probably don't need me to rehash much of that, but I think what remains to be said here is simply that when our politics become our identities, there's no hope for reason. Even with good critical thinking skills, which aren't a given, our brains play tricks on us. And that applies to all of us, not just the Trumpkins. Yes, we could have a whole nother conversation about extremism on other parts of the political spectrum and in other parts of the world as well. There are plenty of extreme political movements to go around. Our human brains are exceedingly good at taking shortcuts. Once we decide things are some way or another way, for example, that the coronavirus pandemic is real and has killed a couple million people, or that it's a hoax, everything we learn after that moment becomes filtered through our desired reality. Confirmation bias. To take it a step further, if we have aligned ourselves with an ideology or a political movement or an individual to the point that we tell ourselves, this is who I am, our brains will rationalize a way to make sure that any events that occur reinforce our already held beliefs. Again, this is true for everyone to one degree or another, but there's something about the Trumpkins that's different. Many of their views are based on false information that is obvious, ridiculous, and easily debunked. Why are some of their views so resistant to reality, like in the extreme, can't-believe-this-is-happening kind of way? Why hasn't critical thinking played a role? Here I'm talking about specific extreme views such as QAnon, or that the 2020 election was fraudulent and Trump actually won in a landslide. Yes, I have to say it, if you believe in the QAnon conspiracy theory, or you think that Trump actually won the election, you might be in a cult. At this point, let's back up for a moment and talk about QAnon, conspiracy theories generally, mass delusion, and cult characteristics seen in the aforementioned. In case you haven't heard, QAnon is a truly bizarre conspiracy theory, which is a bit hard to sum up in a couple of sentences, but here is the gist. In 2017, on an online message board formerly known as 4chan, an internet cesspool where the detritus of society gather to talk about stupid things that make normal people puke, an anonymous user made a series of posts signing them as Q a reference to their supposed Q-level security clearance in the U.S. government. This Q, who remains anonymous, in fact, it's not even known whether it's a single individual or multiple individuals, has continued making posts known as Q-drops or breadcrumbs since then. According to these anonymous posts, Donald Trump has been waging a secret war against a group of elites usually Democrats, celebrities, and so-called deep state government officials, 
who are Satan-worshipping cannibals running a global sex ring, abusing and cannibalizing children. And that's just the basics. There's also body doubles, clones, and shape-shifting reptilians. It's a convoluted and mostly unintelligible addle-brained mishmash of current events, numerology, and alternative historical facts woven into disturbing and twisted conspiracy fantasies that are not only completely made up, but also batshit fucking crazy, like more crazy than the beliefs of most of the cults I talk about on this podcast. It's hard to find good numbers on how many Americans actually believe in the QAnon conspiracy theory, but here are a few of the more recent figures that I found. In September 2020, Forbes reported that 56% of Republicans believe in QAnon. And a month later, USA Today reported that about half of Trump supporters believe in QAnon. NPR reported that 39% of Americans believe or aren't sure whether Trump has been secretly fighting a deep state within the government, which is one of the core tenets of QAnon. Polling information varies, but one thing that's clear is that it's a right-wing and mostly Trump-associated phenomenon. After all, Trump is the savior in the plot. Something else that's important to note is that QAnon is really more of a constellation of conspiracy theories, and adherents tend to pick and choose which ones to believe. Which doesn't make a lot of sense, considering that if you believe that the anonymous Q figure is in fact a high-level government official with access to top-level secrets, why would you believe some of their disclosures but not others? Why do so many people believe in QAnon? That's the million-dollar question. Let's look at some of the psychological reasons that people may be drawn to QAnon and other conspiracy theories. First, it's important to note that traits of conspiratorial thinkers seem to cross the boundaries of many different conspiracies. Belief in one is a strong indicator of belief in others. There's a very strong correlation between belief in QAnon and several other popular conspiracy theories, such as the Flat Earth Crowd, Anti-Vaxxers, 9-11 Truthers, Climate Change Deniers, 5G Tower Burners, and COVID Deniers. According to experts, research has identified some traits that predispose people to conspiratorial thinking. Conspiracy believers are more prone to a couple of cognitive biases, including teleological thinking and hyperactive agency detection. Teleological thinking basically ascribes a hidden purpose to complex natural or worldly events. Incidentally, teleological thinking has long been studied in the context of creationism, in which it's considered a cognitive hindrance to the acceptance of evolution. Hyperactive agency detection is a related type of cognitive bias in which events are over-attributed to hidden forces or secret motives. In other words, if something is unexplained, then it must be because secret forces are at work, deceiving us for some purpose of their own. 
Conspiratorial thinkers are also more likely to have a high need for uniqueness, in this case manifested in a feeling that they know something other people don't know, and cognitive closure, the need to have a concrete explanation, control, and certainty, even when an explanation is absent, uncertain, or complex and nuanced. Lastly, conspiracy belief has been associated in research with lower analytical thinking ability and lower levels of education. But remember, most people can fall prey to some form of conspiratorial thinking because it relies on brain processes that we all share to one degree or another. Speaking of things we all share, let's talk about community. This is a big one. In addition to solving imaginary puzzles together, QAnon and other conspiracy communities get to feel like they are special. They have secret inside information, and they're smarter than all the sheeple who just don't get it and have been brainwashed by the mainstream media. This is one of the strongest similarities between QAnon and other cults. People in cults invariably believe that they are the chosen ones who have unlocked a secret answer and that everyone on the outside is blind and stupid. In psychology, this is sometimes called collective narcissism. Research on cults has also revealed that many who join them have suffered from anxiety and depression and are seeking a group to join where they can fit in. And people tend to also gradually isolate themselves from their friends and family who aren't amenable to their beliefs cementing their place in their cult community more strongly than ever. One of QAnon's slogans, where we go one, we go all. Consider that for believers, they can always find support and agreement on QAnon message boards, whereas facing criticism and even ridicule from others would be profoundly unappealing because changing their beliefs now would mean questioning their own ability to see the truth when they've built an entire identity around being smart enough to see a hidden truth that others can't. And then there's the very human tribal instinct. We're all hardwired to adhere to our group. Some people who are steeped in a community of conspiracy thinkers might find it almost impossible to buck the trend. Now let's talk about one more psychological hook that may lead some to the QAnon conspiracy theory specifically. It's gamified. It provides elements of problem solving as followers eagerly await cryptic cue drops of new information and play the role of heroic cue patriot slash sleuth. In other words, players are LARPing, but the answers to the so-called clues in Q's game are just wild misinterpretations of random data. Donald Trump may have said it best in a tweet. Who knows what this means, but it sounds good to me. Here's another way that QAnon resembles a cult. A refusal to believe anyone but the mysterious Q and Donald Trump. It's ironic that people who can't believe the media, experts, voters, voting machines, poll workers, election officials, the courts, other government officials, the Department of Justice, the CDC or anyone else, would choose to put their faith instead in what amounts to a fictional character, Q, and one of the world's worst and most prolific liars.
So what about climbing out of that rabbit hole? First things first, facts and reasoning sadly won't be helpful. For starters, the constellation of QAnon beliefs is non-factual and unreasonable, so there are always zany and nonsensical counter-arguments to any injection of logic or reason into the conversation. Second, it doesn't seem to matter to Q adherents that the prophecies and predictions never seem to come true or materialize. In fact, Q is always wrong about everything. 10 minutes on Google can easily debunk Q's asinine half-baked posts, as ex-QAnon acolytes freely admit, which makes the whole thing that much more baffling. The 2020 election was supposed to be what QAnon calls the Great Awakening or the Storm, when all the deep state officials would finally be exposed and arrested and Donald Trump would be declared the winner of the election. Well, that didn't happen. And going back in time, Q's other predictions have also never come to pass. Followers typically respond to these failures as tests of faith. I've talked about this test of faith concept in previous Failed Utopia episodes, but it boils down to an unwillingness to change one's opinion or position based on new information, choosing instead to use mental contortions and rationalizations to keep the faith. One of QAnon's many catchy mottos is trust the plan. Lack of healthy cognitive flexibility is a key hallmark of conspiracy thinkers and cult members. When Trump lost the election in 2020, hardcore Trumpkins clung to the baseless claims of election fraud, believing that an investigation would reveal that the election was in fact stolen from Trump. With no evidence for Trump's false claims of widespread voter fraud materializing, they latched onto January 6th, the day Congress would take the symbolic action of certifying electoral votes. After the failure of the January 6th insurrection to stop the process, Q devotees moved the goalposts to January 20th, the inauguration, when Trump would supposedly use his last hours in office to send political opponents to Guantanamo Bay, invoke martial law, and reveal a secret plan to stay in power. Imagine thinking you're fighting the fascists, but you're rooting for your candidate who lost the election to stay in power by invoking martial law. Huh? When nothing happened January 20th, the goalposts moved again to March 4th. Why March 4th? Well, that date is associated with another extreme group called the Sovereign Citizen Movement. They believe that a law passed in secret in 1871 made the United States a corporation instead of a country, and any amendment to the Constitution passed since that time has been invalid, and therefore they are not subject to the laws of current government. And that's why, as these other fringe beliefs bleed into the QAnon movement, followers now think the military will help overthrow the government and install Trump on March 4th. We'll see. After each disappointment, some Q followers may turn away from the movement. Sounds like good news, right? Wrong. 
disaffected Q adherents are not very likely to simply return to a normal existence. Instead, they are ripe targets for other conspiracy theorists and extreme groups to recruit. We've already seen evidence online of neo-Nazis and others opening up the door to usher in disappointed Q followers looking for the next big thing. Remember earlier when I said that belief in QAnon is a good indicator for belief in other conspiracies? Getting out of QAnon isn't necessarily a trip out of the rabbit hole, it's just another tunnel. Given how easily QAnon's claims can be debunked, we have to conclude that staying in it is a choice, representing an unwillingness to unplug and move on. I alluded to this earlier, but let's remember what a conspiracy like QAnon provides. Fun, working on a mystery and role-playing a hero fantasy, a feeling of belonging and community, and being special. Hey, even the president said so and self-worth, not to mention a sense of certainty and control in chaotic, scary, and uncertain times. Walking away from all that without fulfilling relationships, meaningful connections, and recreational pastimes with a community of peers to replace it is probably unlikely for most. So how can we even have a reasonable conversation with someone who exists in a different reality devoid of facts, let alone help them out of the rabbit hole? According to psychology experts and deprogrammers, the only place to start is with empathy. The thing is, when a person's identity is fully enmeshed with their beliefs, challenges to those beliefs are viewed as an existential threat so they will likely react to confrontation or argument by doubling down, essentially driving them further down the rabbit hole in order to protect themselves from pain and disappointment and embarrassment, and avoid the cognitive dissonance that being presented with the facts induces. To admit they were wrong about Q would mean to admit they've been fooled and acknowledge the harm they've done that instead of being the clever one who saw through the hoax, they were actually the one who fell for it. So to summarize, true QAnon believers do not want to give up their beliefs, and it may be difficult to impossible to get them to do so. Experts suggest that principles from deprogramming, addiction treatment, and cognitive behavioral therapy could be useful, but the person has to want to get help for any of that to work, and as I just noted, that's fairly unlikely to be the case. So if you can't deprogram your loved one, what can you do? It seems to boil down to maintaining contact, offering love and friendship, and being there for your loved one with the hope of luring them back from the brink with meaningful connections, activities, and relationships, which as we discussed is something that either may have been missing from their life when they joined the conspiracy theory or extreme group, or something they gained from the group that they don't want to give up. Basically, you're trying to make the real world look good to them again. This may be difficult to do if your loved one has embraced ideas that are hateful and harmful, thus alienating them from friends and family. And you have to consider your own boundaries and mental health, and how much of their pushback with their conspiracy ideas you're willing to listen to. Being there for your loved one in case they ever do try to get out is a good idea, 
but it doesn't give me much confidence for changing the minds of those who have firmly held beliefs. After all, how many cults have we already talked about on this podcast whose members had loving friends and family who desperately wanted and tried to help them get out, but found it impossible? That said, it's worth trying, and there is some helpful advice from experts out there. It usually seems to involve some gentle leading questions like motivational interviewing. If you have a loved one you're worried about because of their extreme beliefs, or if you yourself are on the fence about QAnon or another conspiracy theory, check out the show notes for this episode. I have a bunch of links and resources and further reading for you guys, including information about why people believe in conspiracy theories or join cults, how to get out, incredible interviews with ex-Q and non-believers, and more. So I hope you'll all check that out. In conclusion, telling people they're wrong simply won't work. Note to self, this podcast won't change anyone's mind. It'll just piss people off. And now we've reached the point where we have to investigate whether Trumpism itself is a cult. We talked about QAnon, but many Trump supporters don't identify with the QAnon movement. What about Trump himself and his other followers who may not necessarily be into secret cabals of pedophiles or a deep state shadow government? Well, QAnon aside, supporting Trump after his many failures, lies, rage tweets, scandals, demands for total fealty while giving no loyalty in return, authoritarian disposition, and a deadly insurrection appears pathological or cult-like to many observers and experts. Some of these experts have offered up psychological reasons as to why that may be. Those reasons include shared psychosis and narcissistic symbiosis, as well as a suite of psychological techniques known to cult survivors and experts as mind control or brainwashing, such as coercive persuasion and thought reform. Remember the hallmarks of Trump's distinctive communication style. Much of what he says is either easily debunked with a little fact-checking or just unintelligible word salad but he is effective at creating short, powerful phrases and slogans. Repetitive mantras, lock her up, build the wall, stop the steal. Negative labels, fake news, the liberal media, crooked Hillary, sleepy Joe. These slogans and labels are mental shortcuts or heuristics. It's dangerous because it allows someone to instantly dismiss information that contradicts their worldview without using critical thinking or arguing the facts. Unflattering media coverage of Trump? Dismiss it in an instant with the retort, fake news. No need to look into it because journalists are corrupt. They're out to make Trump look bad. The mainstream media is the enemy of the people. Then there's the QAnon strain of this, deep state, false flag, trust the plan. It's lazy, but it's extremely effective. It reinforces cognitive bias and resolves cognitive dissonance easily and without effortful analysis. And it's hard to argue with because facts and logic become irrelevant, a dynamic we've seen playing out with the Trump administration time and again. Now we can start to see the different types of cognitive shortcuts and psychological devices mix and swirl together. 
conspiracy thinking, enemies everywhere, fear-mongering, a single savior in a holy battle for America's soul, mental shortcuts that quash critical thinking, various forms of cognitive bias, us versus them and grievance. The sense that what America used to be has been broken down, depleted, or lost. Here's one more psychological phenomenon to add to the mix. The Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a cognitive bias in which people with low ability in a particular area lack the cognitive ability to recognize their own deficiency. The end result is that the least informed and least skilled tend to be the most confident. Those with higher ability and knowledge in an area have the ability to recognize their own shortcomings and are more open to doubt, cognitive flexibility, and the possibility they could be wrong about things, enabling them to better learn and take on board new information. I'm sure you've all observed this dynamic playing out in comment sections online. And then there's Trump's intolerance of any criticism and his attacks on his many perceived enemies. He demands complete loyalty from those around him and returns none. And the loyalty he demands is not to the country or even the government, but to himself personally. With this worldview, legitimate criticisms or questions about his leadership or his policies can only ever be perceived as dirty attacks to smear him personally. Think of the endless parade of officials he touted breathlessly then fired at the first sign of disagreement, usually turning on them and lobbing vicious insults and Twitter bombs at them. So which is it? Was he hiring the best people or were they all incompetent, disloyal losers? Think of the endless line of random people he bullied and terrorized for little or no reason in late-night tweet storms, at his ego-stroking rallies, and in strange rambling call-ins to Fox News. Just to be clear, the danger here is not just hurting people's feelings and putting targets on their backs, it's that these were specific tactics he used to indoctrinate his followers against imaginary enemies, which is step one in an autocratic takeover, observed in any number of historical instances. Trump has masterfully harnessed this dynamic with his supporters. Once he has his followers believing that everyone outside of himself and a select few others loyal to him is dishonest, corrupt, and out to get them, he can get them to believe anything, sometimes even the exact opposite of the truth. Christians believing that an immoral, sinful mythomaniac can usher in a new day for Christian America, or even that he was sent by God to usher in the end times, like a Cheeto Jesus. Lower-income Americans worried about jobs, thinking this rich, selfish, tax-evading charlatan gets them and pulls for the little guy and not his rich buddies. The people who thought he'd run the economy like he ran his businesses, convinced he's a great businessman and negotiator, when in reality, he left a long trail of bankruptcies, fraud, and lawsuits in his wake, going back decades. He failed so often to negotiate deals with a Congress controlled by his own party that he just gave up started signing executive orders, and popped in to blow things up on the few occasions when Congress did seem close to getting a deal on something. But none of that phases his most ardent supporters. After all, he's the only one they can trust. 
This loyalty thing may also help explain Trump's tendency to recognize and play only to his own supporters and not the rest of America, and why he refused all pleas to try to widen his coalition by reaching out to other groups. Other Republicans, Democrats, progressives, independents who didn't vote for him, they're all enemies. That might not seem smart, but it's a strategy. It worked for him in 2016, and it came pretty close to working in 2020. So here's the thing, a smaller group of extremely loyal followers primed to hear and accept your message can be the most powerful and beneficial type of following to a controlling leader. I talked about this on the Heaven's Gate episode in the context of both cults and scams. Finding and targeting the people who are capable of being led down a particular path and then indoctrinating and radicalizing from there. The foot in the door can be anything. A distrust of authority or government, religion, Christianity in this case, a need for certainty in uncertain times, or a fear of change can all be used to market an ideology like Trumpism or QAnon. these psychological strategies and responses come straight from the playbooks of not just autocratic leaders, but also cult leaders. I've talked about this all before here on Failed Utopia. If you're just tuning into the podcast for the first time, I recommend you go back and check out the episodes on Jonestown, Gloria Vale, Synanon, and Heaven's Gate, and listen for the techniques I just talked about. The bottom line is that experts on cults, psychology, and violence have in fact identified ways in which Trump employs cult-like techniques to gain scary levels of loyalty and devotion from his followers, whose adoration seems to be undiminished no matter how bad things get. If that interests you, I'm putting links to further reading about all of that in the show notes. Ultimately, whatever your thoughts on Trump world, It didn't usher in a new utopian phase of American life. It didn't make America great. It's been quite the opposite. It's hard to say where we go from here, but I think it's likely that Trumpism will be sticking around for a long time to come. Trump's out of office, but still holds the Republican Party tightly in his grip. And we'll just have to wait and see what happens in his impeachment trial which, at the time of this recording, is set to start next week. So, does a vote for Donald Trump mean you're in a cult? Not necessarily. 74 million Americans recently voted for Trump for a multitude of reasons. Unfortunately, many moderate voices have been forced out of Trump's Republican Party, winnowing it down to the most extreme and those willing to toe Trump's line. Does a vote for Donald Trump, a Confederate flag, a QAnon t-shirt, and swarming into the Capitol building as part of a murderous mob trying to overturn a legally conducted election mean you're in a cult? Well, let's ask my magic eight ball. Ask again later. Oh, come on. Hey, magic eight ball, will my crush ask me to the prom?
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it, and if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link in the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com, or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.